0: welcome to murder bucket i'm your host hannah and this is the podcast where i dive deep into murders paranormal activity abductions kidnappings and weird stuff let's see what i'm gonna pull out of the bucket this week good evening everyone and welcome back to another episode of the murder bucket podcast. I'm sure that many of you are anticipating tonight's episode. We will be discussing the Branch Davidians and the Waco siege. Before we dive in, let's quickly do our week slash weekend recap. Friday, I had to take our daughter to the doctor's office because, guess what? She got another ear infection. Yes, that is the third one in the last three months. I am currently discussing with her doctor what the next steps are if she continues to get ear infections and if tubes are in our future. But as of right now, she hasn't decided that that is a thing unless she continues to have an ear infection every single month. Saturday, I went out Christmas shopping with two of my very best friends, Lauren and Shelby. While we were out shopping, we went to Five Below and purchased almost a hundred toys because Lauren's mom, who is the person that watches our daughter, does a fundraiser every single year for Toys for Tots. She usually hosts a really big open house Christmas party and has her whole house decorated from top to bottom. Has the Marines come out. She reads a children's Christmas story and the birth of Jesus out of the Bible. And there is usually always food that is catered. You walk around. You check out all the trees. And she has 53 trees in her house. Yes, you heard me correctly. And there is reindeer food for the kids to take home. Homemade candy. But the one stipulation of coming to the open house is to bring an unwrapped toy for Toys for Tots. So like I said, she does this every single year and has done it for the past 14 or 15 years. But obviously because of COVID, she hasn't been able to do the open house for the past two years, but is still collecting toys. So we went and bought almost 100 toys. Took them back to the house, and then we drove out to one of the malls in our area, got lunch, and of course, did Christmas shopping. And then that night was supposed to be the actual Christmas party because it is the first Saturday of December. But instead, like I said, because of COVID, she did a Facebook Live video where she read the birth of Jesus and then a Christmas story. Sunday, we went to church as usual, and then after service was over, the church hosted a big Christmas party where we just sat around, talked with friends, ate some really good food, and then after that, we came home and our daughter took a nap for a little while, and then later on that evening, we went out and bought our Christmas tree. Every year since my husband and I have been married, we have gotten a live Christmas tree. I never had one growing up and neither did my husband. So we decided that that was going to be our tradition. And I just really love the smell and the look of a real tree every year and getting to pick it out. So that's just one of our Christmas traditions and I won't go into a ton of detail this week. I'll talk a little bit more next week of some other things that we do every single year. And then Monday is always the dreaded Monday. And now it's Tuesday, and you're here listening to me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into tonight's discussion. The Branch Davidians and the Waco Siege. According to wikipedia.com, the Branch Davidians are a religious association founded in 1955 by Benjamin Rode. They regard themselves as a continuation of the General Associated of Davidian Seventh-Day Adventist, established by Victor Hotif in 1935. Victor was a Bulgarian immigrant who wrote a series of tracts entitled The Shepherd's Rod which called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His ideas were rejected, so he and his followers founded the Davidians and settled just outside Waco, Texas. A compound was built, and they called it Mount Carmel Center. They then began preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Victor died in 1955, and his wife Florence became the leader and continued in her husband's footsteps. In 1957, she sold the original Mount Carmel Center and purchased 941 acres near Elk, Texas. She named that property New Mount Carmel Center. After the end-time date failed, she decided to dissolve the Branch Davidians in 1962 and sold all but 77 acres. A former follower of Victor, Ben Roden took possession of the property. On February 27th of 1973, the new Mount Carmel was sold to him, his wife, and their son. Ben then established a general association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. He promised his members that once they reached a state of moral maturity, Christ would return soon. When he died in 1978, members were torn between the allegiance to his wife Lois and his son George. George claimed to be the next heir, even though he was not widely respected within the community. Lois found an ally in Vernon Howell and began to have an affair with him. Vernon was a Bible teacher that moved to Mount Carmel in 1981 he began to gain support and many followers. When Lois died, George inherited the positions of prophet and leader, but soon after, a power struggle ensued between George and Vernon. George was able to gain control in 1985, which prompted Vernon to leave Mount Carmel with several followers and resettle in Palestine, Texas. At one point, George wanted to prove who was the rightful heir to the leadership by digging up the casket of one Anna Hughes to see if Vernon could resurrect her from the dead. Vernon instead went straight to the police and claimed that George was guilty of corpse abuse. The county prosecutors refused to file charges unless they had video or photo proof. So, on November 3rd, 1987... Vernon and Seven Followers raided Mount Carmel equipped with five semi-automatic rifles, two .22 caliber rifles, two shotguns, and over 400 rounds of ammunition. They intended to photograph the body, but before they could, George opened fire. The Sheriff's Office responded about 20 minutes after the gunfire started. Vernon and his followers were dubbed the Rodenville Eight by the media and were tried for attempted murder. Seven people were acquitted, and the jury hung on Vernon's verdict. While George was awaiting trial for corpse abuse, he was put in jail under contempt of court charges because he used foul language. He was then jailed for six months for legal motions he filed with explicit language. He then faced 90 days in jail for living on the property after he was ordered to never live on the property again or call himself the leader. Vernon and several of his followers moved their headquarters back to Mount Carmel after they paid the thousands of owed taxes. Vernon now owns Mount Carmel. In 1990, after Vernon acquired the position of spiritual leader from George, He wanted to assert his spiritual authority. His first move was to adopt a new name of David Koresh. He picked this name to suggest that he was a spiritual heir of the biblical King David. He then took on several spiritual wives from among the unmarried members. Several of those wives were teenagers and the community was accused of child abuse by a former member. According to Britannica.com, David's interpretation of the Bible rested largely on identifying himself with the Lamb mentioned in Revelation 5. The Lamb is identified with Jesus, but David distinguished between them, suggesting that the Lamb's role was to lose the seven seals and to interpret the scroll mentioned in Revelation 5-2, thereby bringing forth the end-time revelation of Christ. Revelation 5.2 says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? The Waco Tribune Herald published a series of articles on February 27, 1993, that reported allegations that David had physically abused several children in the compound and committed rape by taking underage wives. It is also claimed that he was an advocate for polygamy and declared to be married to several women. The article went on to claim that at one point, David announced that he was entitled to have at least 140 wives. Some of these wives were as young as 12 or 13 years old. In addition to this, David was also suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. The previous year, Chief Deputy Daniel Weinenberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF, to let them know that they were contacted by a local delivery driver. The driver stated that a package that was to be delivered to the Branch Davidian's residence had broken open and it included firearms, grenade casings, and black powder. This prompted the ATF to open an investigation. ATF agents David Aguilera and David Skinner spoke to the compound's gun dealer, Henry McMahon. They attempted to get him to speak with David on the phone. David gave the ATF permission to inspect their weapons and paperwork. That's when the ATF began to do surveillance from a house across the road. Agent Aguilera filed an affidavit to obtain a warrant to search the compound. He states in this that the Branch Davidians violated several federal laws and they wanted to arrest David Korish on weapons charges, citing the many firearms that they had accumulated. I've included a link in the show notes if you would like to read the whole affidavit. The search warrant stated that a search would be conducted on or before February 28, 1993, between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Even though the investigation technically focused mainly on the firearms violations and not the illegal drugs, the ATF requested that the DEA and DOD assist them in citing a drug connection based on five things. one. A recent delivery contained chemicals, instruments, and glassware. Two. A written testimony from a former resident stated that David told them drug trafficking was a desirable way to raise money. Three. Many current residents had prior drug involvement. Four. Two former residents were incarcerated on drug trafficking crimes. And five. The National Guard flyovers with thermal imaging cameras showed hot spots inside the compound that were possibly meth labs. March 1st, 1993 was the initial date of the raid, but they decided to move it up a day to February 28th in response to the article from the Waco Tribune Herald. Prior to this, the ATF had three meetings with the Tribune Herald staff to request a delay in publication. The paper was told that the raid was taking place on February 22nd and then changed to March 1st. They were then told that it was changed to an indefinite date. During the meeting that was held on February 24th, the paper told the ATF that they were publishing the series and would be including an editorial calling for local authorities to act. On February 28th, the ATF attempted to execute their search warrant without the Branch Davidians being prepared and armed. Of course, this didn't happen because a KWTX-TV reporter who knew about the raid asked a USPS carrier for directions to the compound. It turns out that carrier happened to be David's brother-in-law. Some male members were ordered by David to begin arming themselves and taking up defense positions, while the women and children were told to take cover. He then informed them that he was going to try and speak with the ATF agents so this didn't get out of hand. Let's pause here so we can listen to a word from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. With Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're facing the same problem as me. Finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your spouse, your nephew, or to bring to a work holiday party. There are so many things out there to choose from. But if you want to give something unique, I have the solution. It's called Unidragon. Expertly crafted wooden puzzles. I own the Charming Owl Puzzle. When it first arrived, I was completely blown away. Unidragon tells you that each piece has its own unique shape and they aren't wrong. They mention the incredibly vibrant colors of each puzzle and it will amaze you when you see one in person. The reasons why so many people love Unidragon puzzles is because it's interesting for adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon has given Murder Bucket listeners their very own promo code. When you go to unidragon.com and enter promo code BUCKET, you will receive 10% off. So get your shopping list done early this year by visiting unidragon.com and selecting one of their gorgeous puzzles. And we're back. At 9.45 a.m. on February 28th, ATF agents arrived in a convoy of civilian vehicles with uniformed personnel in SWAT tactical gear. They claimed to have heard gunshots coming from within the compound on arrival. Branch Davidian survivors claim that the first shots actually came from ATF agents. Some of the very first shots fired hit David in the hand and stomach. In an article, there are audio tapes of member Wayne Martin contacting emergency services, pleading for them to stop shooting. On the recording, you can hear Wayne saying, Here they come! That's them shooting! That's not us! Here is a two-minute clip off of YouTube of that 911 call where you can hear Wayne screaming.
1: Wayne, talk to me, Wayne. Tell me how you are. I have a right to defend myself! Let's resolve it firing first! Okay, let's resolve it. Let's resolve this, Wayne, before someone gets hurt. Okay? I'm trying to make contact with the forces outside. Okay? Okay! All right. I don't hear any gunfire. Are you okay? No God. Okay. Is anybody in there with you hurt, Wayne? Okay, a man's hurt. All right. They call me back. Call me. Hold on, Wayne. while well, I'm. Don't let this line close. Okay. They're firing up here. Pardon me. They're still attacking. All right.
0: The first casualty was an ATF agent who made his way to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Many agents fired at the building while Branch Davidian members fired at the helicopters overhead. The pilots chose to pull away out of safety. On the east side of the compound, agents brought in two ladders to make their way to David's room where they believed that the weapons were being stored. As soon as three agents reached his window, they came under fire. One agent was killed and another wounded. The third agent climbed over the peak of the roof to join the others who were attempting to gain entry. They broke the window and threw in a flashbang stun grenade and entered. As soon as they got inside, a storm of bullets were fired, wounding one agent who was able to climb back outside and get to safety. Another agent fired his shotgun at the members, but was ultimately hit in the head by return fire and killed. A Branch Davidian member was then killed and several more agents were wounded. As the agents were escaping, one stayed behind to cover fire and they killed another member. Dozens of agents took cover behind vehicles and continued to exchange fire with the members more and more agents were wounded during this gunfire exchange and another was killed. The exchange of gunfire continued for a total of two hours. Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLean County Sheriff's Department called the ATF agents and were able to negotiate a ceasefire. It's recalled in the documentary Waco, The Rules of Engagement, that the ATF only withdrew after they ran out of ammunition. In total, four ATF agents were killed, five Branch Davidians were killed, and 16 were injured. Those that were killed are as follows. ATF agents, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeon, and Conway LeBlue. Branch Davidians, Winston Blake, Peter Gint, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and Jaden Wendell. After the ceasefire happened, agents were able to establish contact with David and several other members. The FBI then took command soon after this because of the deaths of the ATF agents. Jeff Jamar the head of the FBI's San Antonio field office, became in charge of the siege. Then began the 51-day standoff between the FBI and the Branch Davidians. In the beginning of the standoff, the members were contacting local news media and David was giving phone interviews regarding the gunfire attack. The FBI cut off their communication to the outside world almost immediately. It was thought that the FBI had made several breakthroughs in the beginning when they negotiated with David that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound in return for David recording a message that would be broadcast on national radio. After the broadcast was made, David backed out of the agreement, stating that God told him to remain in the building and wait the FBI were able to facilitate the release of 19 children ranging from 5 months old to 12 years old without their parents. Many of those children were interviewed by the FBI and the Texas Rangers. They told authorities that they had been physically and sexually abused long before the standoff began. This was the key justification offered by the FBI for launching tear gas attacks to force the members out of the compound. During the standoff, the FBI sent a video camera to the compound. It was accepted, and many of the members made videos. In some of these, David is seen introducing his children and his wives. Many of those members also made statements. On day nine of the standoff, a video was sent to the FBI negotiators stating that there were no hostages and everyone inside was there on their own free will. It did show that there were still 23 children inside. FBI negotiators were concerned that if these videos were ever released to the media, that David and the Branch Davidians would gain some sort of sympathy. David ended up negotiating for more time so that he could write religious documents that were needed to be completed before surrendering. The FBI negotiators started calling his conversations Bible Babble. The FBI believed that the negotiations were the answer as well as force to potentially end the standoff. Several aggressive techniques were used such as sleep deprivation. They would broadcast recordings of jet planes, pop music, chanting, and screams of rabbits being slaughtered. They believed that this might draw out some of the members. Nine Bradley fighting vehicles that carried tear gas grenades and ferret rounds, as well as M728 compound engineer vehicles from the U.S. Army, began patrolling around the compound. These vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing, outbuildings, and cars. They repeatedly drove over the grave of Branch Davidian member Peter Gent despite the several protests. The power and water were cut off to the compound, forcing everyone inside to survive on rainwater and their stockpiled MREs. David eventually ordered a group of members to leave. 11 people were arrested as material witnesses. One of those was charged with conspiracy to murder. Several scholars tried to tell the FBI that their tactics would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were a part of the biblical end of times. They believed that this was going to increase the chances of violent or deadly outcomes the FBI negotiating team's discussions with David became very difficult. He would constantly proclaim that he was the second coming of Christ and was told by God to remain in the compound. Several FBI planners did discuss using snipers to kill David, but they thought the Branch Davidians would commit a mass suicide like what happened in the 1978 Jonestown complex. U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, who was appointed in March of 1993, spoke with President Bill Clinton regarding the siege and stated that the conditions were deteriorating and that the remaining children were being abused. President Clinton recalled the covenant, the sword, and the arm of the Lord siege in Arkansas that happened on March 19, 1985. During that siege, law enforcement were able to come to a peaceful resolution, arrest and convict the CSAL's top leaders. That organization later dissolved. President Clinton suggested similar tactics against the Branch Davidians. Janet Reno stated that the FBI hostage rescue team was tired and that the standoff was costing a million dollars each week and that the branch davidians could hold out even longer than the csal the approved assault took place on march 19 1993 with the branch davidians being armed heavily the fbi armed themselves with 50 caliber rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles the combat engineering vehicles use explosives to tear holes in the walls of the buildings Agents then threw in tear gas to try and force people out to avoid harming them. They used loudspeakers to let them know that no armed assaults were going to be used and asked them to not fire on the vehicles. The hostage rescue team was authorized to return fire if need be, but when they were fired on, no shots were fired by the federal agents. Instead, They just increased the amount of tear gas that was being used. Early in the morning, the hostage rescue team fired two M651 rounds at the construction site on the compound. After more than six hours, no members had left the building. Instead, they sheltered underground in the bunker and wore gas masks. By mid-afternoon, three fires broke out in different areas of the building and spread rapidly. The FBI states that the fires were set by the Branch Davidians and not by them. During this fire, nine members exited the building. The remaining members were either buried alive by the rubble, suffocated, or shot. David Korish's top aide, Steve Schneider, shot and killed David, and then killed himself. 76 people, including women and children, died. After the fire went out, the buildings were searched. In the bunker, a large amount of bodies, weapons, and ammunition were found. The Texas Rangers arson investigators believe that many of the people that were still inside either refused to leave or realized that they were unable to escape. The University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering conducted an independent investigation and concluded that the remaining people inside had sufficient time to escape if they wanted to. Autopsies were performed on the bodies revealed that several of the women and children died from skull injuries. Others showed that they were killed with cyanide. Many of those autopsies showed that 20 members had been shot. These included David and five children all under the age of 14. A three-year-old child was stabbed in the chest. These were considered to be mercy killings. The U.S. Office of Special Counsel concluded that the gunshot wounds were actually overt suicides, consensual execution, or forced execution. In 1995, the ATF decided that dynamic entry would only be planned after all other operations had been considered and adjusted their training accordingly. Wow, that was a lot of information and we're not even done yet. Tune in next week as we discuss the trial, the imprisonments, the civil suits, and so much more. But before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Booze and Ghouls podcast.
1: Hey, Leanne. Hey, Alana. Why should the people listen to Booze and Ghouls? Well, I don't know. Maybe because they want to be entertained and informed at the same time.
0: And also, would you say that it's funny?
1: hilarious he's also not a fan of men and we'll try to scare them off <laughs> well listen i've scared off a man or doing my day too <laughs> he's still trying to run his ghost brothel i love it check out booze and ghouls a paranormal true crime and conspiracy podcast new episodes every friday
0: thanks for sticking around to the end i hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day!